Good afternoon. I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, thank you all for being here today. And uh, I want to also thank our outstanding conference staff here at Cato who have done so much to do events like this. We've had quite a number of events this month. It's really incredible. Um, also, thanks to those of you who are watching online at Cato.org. Um, and of course, thanks to our uh, panelists today. It's in the insurgents, David Petraeus and the plot to change the American way of war, author Fred Kaplan tells the story of how a small group of soldier scholars revolutionized the United States military. Their aim was to build a new army that could fight a new kind of war in the post-Cold War age, small wars in cities and villages against terrorists and insurgents. These would be wars not only of fighting, not only nation building, and often uh, wars of choice, not wars of necessity. Kaplan describes how these men and women maneuvered their ideas about counterinsurgency or coined for short through the bureaucracy and made it official policy. It's also a cautionary tale, though, about how creative doctrine can harden into dogma, how smart strategists, today's best and brightest, can win the battles at home but not the wars abroad. By adapting the U.S. military to fight the conflicts of the modern era, they also created the tools and made it more tempting for political leaders to wade into wars that they would be wise to avoid. It's a terrific book, both um, the narrative itself, uh, but also Fred's insights that, that are sprinkled throughout. And it's really an honor to welcome him here to Cato. A few words about Fred. Um, Fred Kaplan grew up in Hutchinson, Kansas. He attended Oberlin College with the intention of writing uh, great literature and essays. He became enthralled instead by political science. Go figure, uh, the Watergate hearings were going on during his summer after freshman year, and so he switched to political science and then eventually to international <coughs> relations. Then he went to graduate school at MIT, where he became immersed in nuclear strategy, arms control, military force planning, which eventually led to the publication of his first book, The Wizards of Armageddon. He also spent some time in the late 1970s and early 1980s here in Washington, including as Representative Les Aspen's defense policy advisor. He signed on with the Boston Globe in 1982 to write about military matters, especially nuclear weapons, and stayed there at the Globe for 20 years uh, in DC through the 1980s uh, as Moscow bureau chief for the Globe in the early post-Soviet period, and then as New York bureau chief uh, during the Giuliani time uh, and the attacks on 9-11. At the end of 2002, uh, Slate hired Fred to be their war stories <coughs> columnist. Since then, he's churned out some longer pieces for other publications and three more books, including Daydream Believers, about American foreign policy in the early 20th century, especially about Iraq, and most recently, of course, The Insurgents. And on a personal, let me just say, it's a great pleasure to welcome Fred here. I read The Wizards of Armageddon when I was in grad school at Temple, and uh, the book had an enormous impact on my work. The, just the chapter on the missile gap uh, formed the basis, in many respects, for my dissertation in my first book. Uh, and, and it remains one of the finest accounts to this day. In history, of course, you're always, the, the danger is you're out too early, new material comes out. The incredible thing about the Wizards of Armageddon is how timeless it has been uh, in spite of all the new material and information that's come out over the last 20 years. And of course, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. So Fred, welcome to Cato. Love to hear your remarks. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Well, wow, thank you. <clears throat> well, thanks for coming. That was very nice. Uh, I'm going to keep these remarks somewhat brief. Uh, the basic theme that I have to say about counterinsurgency is this, that first of all, uh, it, it really does work under certain circumstances. Second, 
uh, these circumstances almost never occur, especially in the modern world, especially uh, the country that's trying to impose this kind of theoretical policy is a democracy in an age of mass media. Uh, I'll quote uh, John Noggle, who wrote and is still who wrote uh, a, a book called uh, Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife, and is still one of the great popularizers and big advocates of counterinsurgency theory, who said and tells many of his friends, uh, the lessons of Malaya are that uh, the best way to fight a counterinsurgency is on a peninsula against an ethnically distinct minority in an era before CNN was invented. So that, that kind of says it all. Uh, but let's take a look at this theory, <clears throat> which isn't just the, the, the ravings or imaginings of someone. It grows out of a particular historical material, uh, bent and, and is, in fact, appropriate to the era in which it uh, was revived in the United States. In the early 80s and early 90s, when a lot of the, the people who became generals and colonels and who are the subject of my book, including Petraeus, were rising through the ranks, uh, <clears throat> the United States Army had a definition of war, and that was major combat operations, uh, you know, a comparable foes against one another, Soviet Union, United States, NATO, Warsaw Pact, all other kinds of conflicts, or at least conflicts against insurgents, uh, small civil wars, that kind of thing, were called military operations other than war, M-O-O-T-W, uh, mutua, it was, it was said with, with a snide sneer. And uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time uh, was known to at least once said, real men don't do mutua. And yet the young officers coming up through the ranks in the late 80s and early 90s, <clears throat> where were they being deployed? They were being deployed in El Salvador, in Haiti, in Bosnia, in Somalia. The generals were telling them these weren't wars. They weren't getting combat uh, badges for them. And yet it certainly felt like wars to them. And so as they rose through the ranks, they decided that the army had to change, not least because they saw that these were the kinds of wars that the United States was going to be fighting in the coming years, especially as the Cold War wound to a halt. This was the kind of conflict that the politicians were going to send them to. Uh, the fact that they weren't being acknowledged as wars, being acknowledged as <clears throat> the kinds of wars that had to be fought in a different way from the way that you would fight a larger conflict meant, first, they weren't going to be advancing. Second, the army was going to be proving itself irrelevant. And third, we were going to be losing a lot of these wars. So we, the army had to adapt. A revolution had to be sired from within. I'm not going to go through all the details of how this <clears throat> community of, of counterinsurgency advocates came into being, but it is worth focusing on David Petraeus, who is the namesake of the subtitle. He kind of glommed onto this a bit earlier than most. He went to um, France right after graduating from West Point in 1974 to do parachute training, started reading a lot of French counterinsurgency literature, including uh, a book by David Galula called Counterinsurgency Warfare, which would later become very influential here. And then when he went to, a decade later, when he went to become the assistant to the commander of Southcom and watching all these civil wars going on in El Salvador and, and Nicaragua and the other places, he's saying, my God, this is really happening. This is what I was studying. And it regalvanized his efforts. Years later, when he was... Uh, head of uh, the commander of the 101st Airborne Division in Iraq, 
And most of you know the story of, of he went to Mosul and effect, in effect put counterinsurgency uh, in motion, and it worked. And he did it pretty much, well not pretty much, entirely on his own, because one advantage of the time was that there was no command structure in Iraq, <clears throat> that basically we went into Iraq with no post-war plan, and it was deliberate. It wasn't, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't an act of incompetence. It was deliberate. The idea was we go in, we get out. There is no post-war plan. Donald Rumsfeld wrested away control of post-war Iraq from the State Department because he didn't want there to be a post-war Iraq. But there was a post-war Iraq. And Petraeus left out on his own in Mosul, put in place his counterinsurgency strategy, which, which worked quite well for about a year until he left, and then it fell apart. So he goes to Leavenworth. And one of his big goals is to write a counterinsurgency field manual so that by the time he gets rotated back to Iraq, which he knew was going to happen, he would have the imprimatur of the US Army backing what he wanted to do theater-wide. Now, in the meantime, uh, and you know, I'm generally not a conspiracy theorist, but it's always nice when you come across things that are really conspiracies, because it's, 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 it's quite fun to write about. Uh, there was, uh, there were a lot of people like Petraeus, in that sense, coming along, who were seeing what was going on in Iraq, seeing that it was a disaster, having some knowledge of counterinsurgency theory and how insurgency wars are fighting, and realizing that nobody else did, and this is the way it, it goes. One of these people was Elliot Cohen, whom some of you might know. He teaches over here at uh, SAIS, and he had an annual summer conference up at Basin Harbor, Vermont, where they would discuss, usually, how better, how to improve the teaching of national security studies in American universities. This time he said, okay, we're gonna talk about how to make Iraq a better war. He'd been over there as a Pentagon advisor, thought, saw that it was a disaster. His son was about to be sent there as an infantry soldier. And he says, this is a disaster. I've kind of been a part of this. He, he had endorsed the president. He had endorsed, he'd been endorsing invading Iraq for some time. It actually happened, and it was turning into a complete disaster. So he goes through his Rolodex, goes through military journals, finds everybody, anybody, everybody who had written anything remotely interesting about counterinsurgency and invited them to this conference. One of them was Janine Davidson. Uh, and the, the pivotal thing about this conference wasn't even so much what they talked about and what they argued about. It was the fact that it existed at all. These were 30 people from different walks of life, most of whom didn't know each other until this event, and all of whom, suddenly looking around the table, <clears throat> realized, oh my god, it's not just me. There's this whole nascent community out there. And we can form a community. We can perhaps provide leverage for, for getting this really done. And they went away from the, this conference with a missionary zeal. In the meantime, Petraeus is in, is in Leavenworth. And he knows quite a few of the people who are at this conference. And some of them become his inner circle, his entourage. When this conference takes place in February of 06, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Basin Harbor thing had been the summer before, uh, he's got his team together and they write this conference. They write this manual. Then Petraeus was very big on information operations, an army concept which means you know, well, the French called it less euphemistically propaganda. <laughs> and the idea is that you, you it, it's, 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 it's the minds part of hearts and minds, or maybe it's both, it's hearts and minds, but at all audiences, the people who you're fighting with and the people who need your support back home. 
So Petraeus invites about 150 people to this conference from all over. And the idea is, the, 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 the stated reason is to vet this conference and help us write this and go over some of the points. We're going to have a discussion here. And they did a little bit of that. But the real point was to get support for it, to build support. Uh, this, I wasn't at this conference, but it was videotaped, and I've watched the entire videotape on, on DVD, which is alternately, you know, it's fascinating in some parts and just stupor driving in other parts. Janine, I think you were there too, weren't you? Yes. Uh, but in any event, one interesting thing about this conference, well, several interesting things, but the one I'm going to mention, is that very serious questions were raised about whether this made sense at all. Uh, there were all kinds of historical parallels drawn. The familiar ones are to Malaya, the Philippines. Many people got up and asked, you know, are these historical examples relevant? You know, you've got a, a Maoist insurgency group on the one hand, and you've got these fundamentalist uh, jihadists on the other hand. Do, can you really deal with co-op, defeat them in the same way? And then there's a big component in counterinsurgency is legitimacy. The idea is to help make the host government legitimate. So there are a lot of discussion, well, what does legitimacy mean? I mean, is it just a Western concept? Uh, and, and also, um, is this just too hard for the army, the United States Army, to pull off? I mean, they were talking about one part of the, the, the field manual talks about soldiers and Marines at all levels having a very thorough cultural understanding, political understanding. You know, it, it, the idea of insurgency, let's just back up for a second. The premise of it, which I think is correct in most cases, is that insurgencies grow out of social and political situations. They, 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 they arise because the government in power is not satisfying certain needs. It's, it's, not, it's not governing properly with legitimacy. And so the idea of counterinsurgency is you have to not only fight and kill and arrest the insurgents, the bad guys, but you have to help the government become a more capable government. You have to dry up the support or co-opt the causes of the insurgency. So one question that was raised by several people is, do we really know how to do this? Is this just something that's too hard to do? And another thing that was embedded in the... Uh, the field manual was that this was going to take a long time. Uh, the field manual is a field manual. It's for officers to read in case the politicians tell you you're going to go fight this kind of war, and they say, oh, well, let's see how to do this. But the people who are writing it wanted to send a message to the politicians. And so they couldn't do it explicitly, so they did it between the lines, saying this requires you know, persistent effort, considerable resources. It was like wink and nudge. You know, If you don't want to spend 10 years doing this, don't, don't get involved in it in the first place. But all, this, all these questions and issues were sort of finessed during the conference. The idea was to get it out there, to get it approved by the Army, and by the time Petraeus goes back, to have it be policy. Uh, so Petraeus goes into Iraq as the commander in February of 07. By that time, the, the, the field manual is out in December of 06. He was made commander in 06. Uh, the surge was approved at the end of uh, or 06, early 07, I forget right now. Uh, and also, Bush switches. He says explicitly on television, we are going to change strategy 
to clear, hold, and build, which was the kind of operative slogan of counterinsurgency. It means you clear an area of insurgents, then you keep guys there to hold it, and then you build uh, services and so forth on top of that so that by the time you withdraw, uh, the, the pace is a functioning. I won't go into it now. We can go into it on questionings if you want. Each one of those four things that happened, Petraeus becoming commander, the surge being approved, the strategy being approved, none of this was accidental. All of this was a very craftily manipulated uh, plot. I mean, I, I use the, the, the subtitles David Petraeus and the plot to change the American way of war. It was a plot, a very explicit plot, not necessarily a nefarious plot. Plots can be, you know, good. It was a plot by a small group of people to get these things done and to coordinate it on time. So he gets to, to, um, to uh, Iraq. Certain things are already beginning to happen. The Anbar Awakening, for example. Now, I used to think when, when the surge went in and the Anbar Awakening, and then, you know, in 07, things really did start to improve considerably. In my columns in Slate at the time, I used to say, you know, Surge had nothing to do with this. Petraeus had nothing to do with this. The Anbar Awakening was going on before he even got there. It was a Sunni initiative, not a US initiative. That's what really did it. All this other stuff is coincidence. One thing that I discovered upon doing the research is that, sort of right, but, but in a fundamental way, I was wrong. Because in Anbar, the commander there, this colonel named Sean McFarland, who got this thing going, he had, in fact, come out of this same group uh, as, as the Petraeus counterinsurgency guys. He, too, had come out of the social science department at West Point, where, which was kind of also a, a molding ground for, for this sort of uh, thinking about war. He'd read the same kind of literature that everybody else had. He wasn't even aware of the field manual, but he was already acting it. So I think if you had had a, an, an ordinary commander, a conventional commander, someone like General Casey, being out in Anbar, instead of accepting this initiative from the Sunni sheiks and knowing what to do with it and seeing that there was an opportunity here and here's the possibilities and here's how to deal with it, you know, I think they would have just shot this, them just like they were shooting all bad guys. So I think it did take a certain kind of commander to exploit the conditions to recognize and then exploit the kinds of conditions that were going on on the ground. So to some extent, it actually worked in Iraq. Two, a couple of things happened. Petraeus built on the Sunni awakening, said, well, this looks pretty good. Let's extend it. And, and here's another thing. You know, in counterinsurgency theory, they talk about a unified commander, one guy running everything. Petraeus decided to be that guy. And he did it in a way that I don't think anybody else would or possibly could do. For example, you all know about the Sons of Iraq, which were these turned Sunni militants that he paid to, to, uh, to come join our side because they were getting annoyed with, with al-Qaeda in Iraq. He paid them out of his commander's discretionary fund. Now, the, the point of, an, of a commander's uh, discretionary fund was, you know, pay some guy to clean up the streets, you know, maybe a local auxiliary force. He was paying militants who had been shooting at Americans two weeks earlier, and as far as anybody knows, might be shooting at them again two months hence without telling anyone in Washington that he was doing this. So it's kind of peculiar. And then uh, another thing that he did was to bash the, uh, the Shia militants in Sadr City. 
Before he was there, George Casey, the commander before him, had been told by Prime Minister Maliki, stay out of Sadr City. And Casey's attitude was, okay, hey, it's your country, you're a sovereign country, I'll stay out. Petraeus just went in, he just did it. And he got backing from the ambassador ahead of time, this is what we're doing. And so there were things like that that, that were Petraeus, you know, that is just his mode of operation. And I think this kind of freelancing got him into trouble later, but we don't need to go into that right now. now the thing is, when, when Afghanistan happens, and now I'm going to be condensing a lot because my time is running out, uh, came into Afghanistan, the idea was, okay, Petraeus the miracle worker in, in Iraq. And by the way, even in Iraq, it was, I, I would argue, a tactical success, not a strategic. We still have sectarian... Uh, the, the, the key assumption was that the Iraqi government has to want to do the things that we wanted them to do, and he didn't. So, you know, there was no settling of, of oil revenue among the tribes. There was no settling of Kirkuk. Uh, so while violence is at a much lower level than it was, uh, there is still sectarian violence. It is still fundamentally an unstable state. Afghanistan, the idea was, we'll try to do the same thing. Petraeus knew that they were different countries. Uh, he knew that coin is essentially a local phenomenon. But he didn't know anything about Afghanistan. And you know, we all, going into new situations, tend to look at them through the prism of, of what we know. So what he knew was Iraq, 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 Iraq. And it just wasn't working. And uh, my time is really short, so I'm just going to go. You've got, you've, got a, you've got a little while. Five minutes? Yeah, five minutes. You, at, least, at least five minutes. Yeah, but I'm, I'm now going to get into Kierkegaard. Please go. No idea I'll, I'll let you know when, when, you, okay. when, when you're well, running I want to give everybody a time. But, but, well, Afghanistan, I'll just give you one. Uh, I was told by many people who worked with him in, in Afghanistan that every time a problem was dealt with him, he would say something like, well, you know, in, in Baghdad, we did it this way. Or in Anbar, when this happened, we did this. Or in Mosul, I did this. And that one time, even in a meeting with President Karzai, he starts, well, you know, in Iraq, we did it this way. And coming out of the room with him, one of his assistants who had been both in Iraq and in Afghanistan said, you know, General, it might be an interesting intellectual experiment to try not to think about Iraq at all. And he said, hey, I, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> so uh, I think he tried, but he just, he, in, in, the thing, in Iraq, you know, he'd been there in three tours of duty. By the time he was commander, he really knew the players. He knew the levers. He knew how to do the good cop, bad cop thing with Maliki. He knew how to play tribes off of one another. And he had a very, very deep and competent intelligence officials doing this, uh, providing him the data. There is nothing like that in Afghanistan. And in fact, he should have known this. If you go back to this book by David Galula, which he frequently would take off the shelves and read, because it is a really good book, a very concise book. <clears throat> there is a chapter called Prerequisites for a Successful Insurgency. And it has a list of what traits uh, <clears throat> a country would have to be, which would make winning really most plausible for an insurgency. They included things like uh, corrupt central government, uh, a largely illiterate rural population, mountainous borders, 
bordering country that serves as a sanctuary for the insurgency. I mean, you know, does this add up to something? I mean, it's a, it's a portrait of Afghanistan. And in fact, Kalula even draws a picture of topographically what a, a perfect insurgency country would look like. And it's you could practically do an overlay of it with Afghanistan. <clears throat> so he, he must have known this. And, and here's where I think, <clears throat> I mean, I, I have great admiration for certain things about General Petraeus, but there was one thing he did that I think was, was particularly irresponsible, I would say. And that is that, you know, you know about the 10 meetings that President Obama had with his national security team to figure out the Iraq policy. And, on this last meeting, two days before he gave the speech at West Point, laying out what the policy was going to be, he says, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, you know, you're gonna get 33,000 more troops. Uh, we're gonna try to get NATO to kick in another seven. That'll make McChrystal's 40,000. Uh, in the South and in the cities, we're gonna do counterinsurgency. Otherwise, it's gonna be counterterrorism. And then in 18 months, I'm gonna start to pull them out. Now, can you tell me that with what I'm giving you, you'll be able to do this. You'll be able to turn around the situation so that the Afghan army can take the lead in the fight. Now, Petraeus for sure knew that this was impossible. It just wasn't going to happen in 18 months. But all the generals in that room said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And Obama, he said, now listen, you know, I want to be clear on this. You come back in 18 months, you're not, you're not going to get any more. This is it. This is all you're going to get. So just tell me, if you say no, you know, we'll just put in 10,000 troops and we'll, we'll up the training of the Afghan army. But if you say yes, okay, but it's not going to be anymore. But everybody in that room thought that, well, you know, we'll make this good enough so that he'll have to stay in. He'll have to give us a few more brigades or a little bit more time. And so when 18 months hence, when President Obama, almost 18 months to the day, comes out and says, okay, uh, we're, going to we're not just going to start pulling out the, uh, the surge troops. They're all coming out in the next year, all 33,000. People were shocked, shocked. But what he perceived was that, look, this wasn't working. Now, he had the, a great benefit of having recently killed Osama bin Laden of decimating the Taliban soldiers on the ground so he could portray this as a victory, like, you know, mission accomplished, so to speak. Uh, and the way he then laid out what the mission was, it was accomplished. But that wasn't why he put in 33,000 troops. It was for counterinsurgency, and that wasn't working. So I guess the, um, the, the, the real, and, and then a year later, Obama decides to pull back entirely. And uh, we're not going to get rid of counterinsurgency as an idea entirely. We're going to keep alive the lessons. But the Army and the Marines are hereby ordered uh, not when, they, when, they're, when they're planning, they, where they shall not size their forces for large-scale prolonged stability operations, which is code word for you know this kind of population-centric uh, counterinsurgency, and we're going back to what was kind of the small footprint kind of wars. Yes, there's a war on terror. Yes, there are insurgents, but we will fight them with, with very small footprints, uh, drones, commandos, aiding, training other countries to do their own counterinsurgency, but we've kind of gotten out of the game. Uh, 
And I, I think, in, in maybe in a strategic way, this is a little bit unsatisfying because it's not this unified picture of the world and here's what we're doing about it. It's, it's kind of a, an unsat it's, it's, it's kind of a half measure of how you tackle this problem. But it may very well be uh, that that's all that the United States can do in these situations. The questions that were haunting people at the, going back to the counterinsurgency field manual conference, you know, are these historical parallels relevant? Uh, is this something that the United States, is it something that the army can do? Is it something that the nation can support? Is this something that ultimately speaking will work? Um, and what about the country that we're aiding? We kind of have to have common interests for this to work, and do we? Usually we don't. I mean, that, that's the big thing about Afghanistan. The real problem was Karzai didn't want to reform. His method of staying in power uh, almost defies reform. He has to maintain this kind of criminal network. Uh, of, 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 otherwise, his, his power base falls apart. So that's what I think my final conclusion was, is that counterinsurgency became this uh, sort of very good idea and a very smart idea. It appeals to intellectual uh, generals, officers. I would have to say it also appeals to quasi-intellectual reporters. I think a lot of reporters became very entranced with this because you, know, you would talk with a guy like, say, Tommy Franks, and you would come away, I'm sure Spencer will agree with me, thinking, Jesus Christ, what kind of operation is the army that this, a guy like this can become a four-star general? <clears throat> and then you go talk with like a Petraeus or a McChrystal, and you say, God, you know, this guy, I mean, he understands history, he has a strategic way of thinking, he knows about politics, this, maybe this guy can do this. And I think we all kind of, you know, there, there's an old rule, there's an old saying that in war the enemy has a vote, well, you know, the ally also has a vote, and the situation has an even bigger vote. And so the big idea might be not so much what your strategy is going into it as what you're getting into. So, thanks. Thank you, Fred. Right on time. I didn't have to oh. give him a warning. Um, now let me introduce our two commentators. Uh, Dr. Janine Davidson is an assistant professor in the School of Public Policy at George Mason University, where she teaches courses on national security policy making, strategy, civil military relations, and public policy. From 2009 to 2012, she served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Plans, where she oversaw the development of guidance for military campaign and contingency plans. Dr. Davidson began her career uh, in the United States Air Force, where she was an air, uh, aircraft commander, a senior pilot for the C-130 and C-17 cargo aircraft. She flew combat support and humanitarian air mobility missions in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East, and was an instructor pilot at the U.S. Air Force Academy. From, 2008 to 2000, from 2006 to 2008, Dr. Davidson served as a director in the office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense <coughs> for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. In addition to her government and military experience, Dr. Davidson has also taught political science and international relations courses at Davidson College in North Carolina and held positions at DFI International, the Brookings Institution, and Hicks and Associates. She holds a PhD and a Master's of Arts degree in international studies from the University of South Carolina. Our second commentator today is Spencer Ackerman. He's a national security reporter and blogger. He began his career at the New Republic and currently writes for Wired Magazine's national security blog, Danger Room. Ackerman graduated from Rutgers University, where he was an editor for the daily Targum, 
student paper. In 2002, he moved to DC and became an intern and later an associate editor at the New Republic magazine. He initially supported the Iraq War but became disillusioned and in 2004 started a blog on the New Republic website called Iraqed, which chronicled the dilemmas uh, of pro-war liberals. In 2006, Ackerman left <coughs> TNR and subsequently wrote for the American Prospect and Talking Points Memo. He blogged and reported on national security issues at the Washington Independent uh, until 2010, and then he left for Wired. Uh, Ackerman uh, is, an, is also an active and entertaining Twitter feed, at Ackerman, at Attackerman is the Twitter handle. And uh, Spencer has appeared on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, Democracy Now!, Al Jazeera, and Blogging Heads. And on top of all that, he's a fan of comic books and hardcore punk music. So uh, first, Janine. All right. Please. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having this event and for inviting me and for everyone who made it out today in the, in the cold weather. Um, Fred, this is an excellent book. He was dis disturbed to learn that I just finished reading it this weekend, but I thought it was important to review it prior to coming in today. <laughs> uh, you know, you get so much of the narrative right. Um, people often focus on what, well, I'm going to focus on what you get wrong today yeah. a little bit. Um, and also, I'm going to talk mostly, though, about the debate that the book is generating, which I think is really important. You know, tomorrow marks the 10th anniversary of the invasion. And so now is the time to be yeah. reflecting on the tragedy and the lessons this. of this era when warfare started from Iraq. Um, one of the lessons is about the American way of war and counterinsurgency doctrine in particular. And Fred comments in depth at the end of the book, and he's been doing a lot of interviews and talks since, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, I come to this topic as an academic, as a practitioner, as a policymaker, I got involved in this whole counterinsurgency field sort of accidentally. When I look back, it wasn't really an accident at all. In some ways, I was part of that generation. I'm the same age as John Noggle. We got commissioned in the same year. I flew those missions. And the whole time, as a junior officer, as junior officers do, and I'm sure some of you in this room had a similar experience, we know so much more than the senior officers at the time. And all I could think of was, who's driving this bus? Why are we doing this? If all I do is Bosnia, Somalia, Haiti, and the like, why do my commanders keep telling me that's not what we do? So I had a similar experience, and I came to academia with this question set in mind. How is it that we can adapt to these, to these wars? And in doing that, I learned a lot more about the nature of conflict. I started thinking about. Um, counterinsurgency and stability operations and started delving deeply into this literature and became sort of part of this community that Fred writes about. So uh, I suppose as a social scientist, I became a participant observer as I was writing my own, uh, my own dissertation, which became a book. Um, so let me just say, first of all, that um, I've got five points to make and I've got about 10 minutes. And I want to start by saying that um, FM324, may I? Please. This is it right here. Um, the coin manual is kind of like the Bible. And what I mean by that is that most people don't actually read it, <laughs> but they all think they know what it says. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Chris has a couple earmarks in here. So um, exception that proves the rule, Chris, I'm glad to know that you read it. And I know Fred read it because I read his book, and it's pretty clear that he knows what it says. <laughs> so let me just talk a little bit about my five points that this book is generating. Number one, 
Coin stinks. Everybody knows this. Now, on the book promotion blurb that um, Chris read, I'm going to read it again. He says, this is a cautionary tale about how creative doctrine can harden into dogma, how smart strategists, today's best and brightest, can win battles at home but not the wars abroad. By adapting the US military to fight the conflicts of the modern era, they also created tools and made it more tempting for political leaders to wade into wars that it would be wise to avoid. I actually fundamentally disagree with that. And in fact, Fred's story actually demonstrates how articulating how much coin stinks and how hard it is in this doctrine and in other manuals, we've actually demonstrated that it's not tempting at all. Right? And you see this play out in Afghanistan, I think, and we can talk a little bit about that um, in the Q&A. So there's nothing tempting about coin, and anybody who's actually studied it would know a couple things, like it takes a darn long time, people will be killed, and victory is elusive. We talk about success more than we talk about winning when we talk about coin, but ultimately that it's up to the host nation, and that's another one of the big lessons, that they must share your vision. Now, this is likely part of the debate about Obama in Afghanistan. It's also why, if you would hand me that little pamphlet, why we coindonistas, as I think Spencer Ackerman named me in that group, why we wrote this manual, which you can download from the internet, the US Government Counterinsurgency Guide, which Fred also talks about. Um, it's a guide for policymakers that was written right at the end of the Bush administration. And it clearly points out that counterinsurgency should absolutely be avoided, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it basically says that um, it's, it's too hard. You should be thinking very clearly. It's easier to prevent these things than it is to get mess, massively entwined in them, that, that really matters what the host nation thinks, that they don't have a shared vision, that it is folly to even get involved. I mean, over and over and over again, these so-called best and brightest coindonistas are warning pretty severely about how hard coin is and why it should be avoided. Now, <clears throat> now FM324 is written in the middle of Iraq, right? I mean, it is a five alarm fire when this starts happening. And the people that wrote that book <laughs> wrote it in a desperate effort to stop the bleeding and to stop the killing and to turn it around. And they knew if you talk to Petraeus and his staff, especially some people on his staff, they weren't so sure it was gonna work, <laughs> but it was all they had at that moment in time. And it's what, it's what they felt was going to work. So coin is not what got us into Iraq, and it's not what kept us in Afghanistan either. In fact, I would contend that it was never actually applied in Afghanistan, which brings me um, to my second point. Afghanistan doesn't actually disprove coin, as Fred points out in the book, I think, um, because it wasn't really resourced and it wasn't really tried in Afghanistan. Now that becomes sort of technicality, but I do think it's important. Um, Again, this kind of coin that we're talking about in Iraq and Afghanistan is the messiest and the biggest type of coin. It's, you're already involved, you made a mess, and you've got to clean it up. And it, it's, it, I think it's a very open debate about whether it would have worked in Afghanistan, but let's not kid ourselves that we actually did, in fact, um, try. So the tragedy for Afghanistan is that, like Iraq, it was already in progress. The NATO forces were already engaged. Um, my third point. Doctrine is not policy. Let's not confuse that just because we wrote a book about how to do um, 
counterinsurgency means that we want to be doing it um, all over the world. Um, not having doctrine and not thinking about this type of warfare, I think, would be a massive dereliction of duty on the part of uh, the types of people that are going to be sent to do this whether they like it or not, right? So the military has to be thinking about this. They cannot do what they did after Vietnam, which was to say, that stunk, they we're never going to do it again, or actually more like what I think about the feminists in the 70s, right? I'm not going to learn how to type because then they're going to make me be the typist, right? <laughs> I'm not going to learn how to do this because then they're going to make me. Well, that's just completely ridiculous. <laughs> we have got to study this kind of conflict. It's going to continue to persist. Max Boot's new book demonstrates it's been around forever and it's going to keep happening. Number four, I'm sorry, Fred, you, you really misunderstand the new strategy. Um, this idea that, that the military leadership and President Obama have told the military, yes, not to size for Iraqs and Afghanistans, but they very clearly, throughout the strategy, and I know this because I helped write it, say that you have got to capture the lessons, you've got to institutionalize this, capa this um, capability, but the capacity, the, the large scale, we're not gonna, it would not make any sense to size our military for Iraq and Afghanistan. That's not what we do in America, right? We have a big war, we build a military, we take it back down after that war. That's what's happening, right? And so what you really need to be looking at is the doctrine, training, and education, not the size of the force. And, I, and that's where I feel like the strategy is pretty clear, that that's what the military has been directed to do, and that's what I'm seeing happening. Um, so finally, let's say that uh, your last line of the book that says that, that these so-called coindonistas, these insurgents, that they did not change the American way of war. Actually, I think they did. I think they did. You know, Sir Michael Howard, uh, British historian, says, whatever doctrine that the armed forces are working on now, they have got it wrong. I am tempted to declare that it does not matter because what does matter is their ability to get it right quickly when the moment arrives. So you will never have the perfect contingency plan. You will probably never have the perfect doctrine for every single incident. But what you need to have is <clears throat> concepts about how to operate, and you need to, have, you need to be a learning organization, which I think you make a very good case that, um, that the military has evolved into that, that General Petraeus actively leveraged what he called the engine of change in order to push the organization to learn how to do this kind of thing under fire in Iraq. And now those same rails that have been laid to teach the military how to do this are still being used to continue to institutionalize those lessons. So I think what we'll be looking for in the future, is it in the war games? Is it in the doctrine? Are they be teaching it in um, the schools? Is it, this isn't going to be like Vietnam. I will be massively disappointed and very surprised if they throw out the manuals like they did after, after the last war. I think this is a different time, and I think this generation, of which I'm a part, um, has learned something. And so thank you to Fred for putting it in writing and capturing the narrative. It's an excellent book, and if you haven't read it, run, don't walk, and, and get it on Amazon along with this. Or, or, or out there. It's right out there. <laughs> I'll thank sign the one out here. Yeah, right out here. <laughs> I guess, I guess, please, yeah, I guess please, Spencer. Yeah, please. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, thanks to Chris for putting this together, uh, to Fred uh, for writing such a great book, for Jeanine uh, for her salient comments. Um, I, I'll echo everyone else. Um, whether or not you read Fred's book, you should buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't borrow it. <laughs> uh, well, you won't get my copy. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can make uh, four points in the, in the time left so, uh, so we can uh, have, a, have a good discussion. 
Um, and they're all going to be about some internal criticisms of counterinsurgency, some uh, contradictions, some tensions that, that I don't think have been resolved yet. And then one, one kind of final point that I think speaks to um, something very important that Janine pointed out. Um, and the first is, is counterinsurgency and the counterinsurgent generation has this tendency not to take its own advice. Uh, when you read, first off, um, one very good thing about uh, you know, the, the conspiracy that, that Fred writes about is that it all happens to be out in the open. Uh, these are very smart people who publish a lot. So there's not going to be any kind of secret documentation that you don't know about. A whole lot of this material uh, can be publicly accessed and, and read and synthesized. And that's what, um, as a reporter, has often been kind of uh, both a, a boon and, and a sort of intellectual maddening challenge, which is that so often uh, the people in charge of implementing uh, counterinsurgency decisions just simply don't take you know, what, what, uh, what the manual says or what their own advice is. Uh, Janine likened it to the Bible. That's a, you know, great assumption. That's, I'm sorry, that's a, that's a, you know, great analogy because like the Bible, you bring to it what you've already got in your head and what you want to see exists. Um, you know, very saliently, as, as everyone uh, here has pointed out already, uh, there are lots of uh, red flags about why you should not do this thing. Um, most importantly, you can't want it more than the nation that ostensibly you're trying to support uh, wants to pull it off. And yet, you know, forgive me, Janine, uh, you know, I didn't hear when I was reporting on the Afghanistan surge buildup debate, the counterinsurgents saying, well, all of our doctrine and our experience in Iraq suggest that we really shouldn't do this a second time. Um, the phrase you often got from Petraeus when discussing this with him uh, was a very resonant one that, that, that he said, hard is not hopeless, which is as much as they did very truthfully emphasize how difficult uh, this sort of warfare is, always with this spark of ambition about how in the absence of all better strategies, we really should uh, pull this off. Counterinsurgency tends to be much, much better at mitigating a terrible circumstance uh, than it is at, at, at transforming that circumstance. Uh, the second point I would want to make uh, feeds out of that, which is about counterinsurgency and national strategy. Um, you don't really see a lot of enduring American interests supported by counterinsurgency. This goes back to the mitigation point I just mentioned. This is very good at turning around an absolute nightmare like Iraq, as long as you're willing to decide from there that the strategy should then be to pull back American engagement. Um, when the Bush administration in 2008 kind of got diplomatically outfoxed by its Iraqi government counterpart, the goal had been to get Iraq down to a, a kind of manageable state of, of Iraqi acceptable enough violence so that a persistent American presence could endure. That ended up not happening by variety of, of machinations, mostly by the Iraqis. Um, when you look out at, at what enduring interests counterinsurgency is promoted, you don't really get you know, very many. Um, we've just sacrificed a tremendous amount in Afghanistan and you really have to come out of that wondering what's in Afghanistan that's worth that sacrifice. Um, the final point uh, that I'd want to make in terms of the internal contradictions is, is one that I think will be very important for counterinsurgency theorists to reconcile with going forward when, if as Janine points out, there will inevitably be a time when the United States gets sucked back into this, which I think is correct, um, which is, you know, where the, 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 the you know, tensile strength is bonding or separating counterinsurgency from counterterrorism. The whole point of these two wars that we've just fought uh, are for counterterrorism purposes. And there have been uh, lots of very good, sensible points made 
uh, by counterinsurgents throughout the years about how ultimately a counterterrorism fight is a fight about intelligence. The only way you get intelligence from a local population that's, belie that's beleaguered by an insurgency is if you give people a material reason to provide it to you, which is to say, instead, I, I don't really like the hearts and minds construction. I tend to think of it as asses, stomachs, and wallets. Basically, <laughs> like, you keep people safe, you keep them at a state of basic, you know, e existence, um, and you provide for, you know, their material necessities as well as per perhaps some of their aspirations. That seems to make a lot more sense for why uh, a local, uh, a, a, you know, an Iraqi or an Afghan might bandwagon with the United States more than it would bandwagon with an insurgency. But ultimately, uh, you know, something that I, you, you tend to see less of from the counterinsurgency community is reconciling with when we're not practicing counterinsurgency, when we're practicing pure counterterrorism in places like Pakistan, you're not doing anything from that. And yet the intelligence still manages to be there at least sufficiently enough or the amount of, and there's you know, lots of criticisms one can make about the targeted killing program. Um, and I suggest you go to wired.com backslash danger room for most of them. Um, <laughs> is that you're not really doing any of this and yet uh, the degradation of al-Qaeda is in place. There's also a sub-point to be made both about counterinsurgency and counterterrorism for uh, orthogonal uh, or, or exogenous developments by the local populations themselves and by the insurgent or terrorist groups having more to do uh, with influencing that circumstance than perhaps what America and its allies do. The final point I'd want to make, um, which I think is Janine is, is completely right about, you know, you're, however much you know, America wants to be done with counterinsurgency, it's not done with America. And the, the better uh, measurement of this is not in any aspiration that an American policymaker wants to make, it's the fact that you've just had uh, 10 years worth of particularly soldiers and Marines just go through this crucible. And just as we've seen in every earlier generation of, of warfare leaving an enduring impact on the people who, who conducted it, so too are you going to see that, I, I, I believe very strongly, with the generation uh, that, were, you know, put, that were platoon leaders, that were company commanders, and that were non-commissioned officers um, who, who grew up through Iraq and Afghanistan through multiple deployments. Um, however much American strategy would like to say we're kind of done with this so far, I would find it astonishing if for the next 15, 20 years of these people's careers, as they ascend throughout the ranks of the military and the different aspects of the national security hierarchy, they're not viewing the world through that prism. It would be human nature to do that. I'd be really stunned if, if they hadn't. So on that note, I think I'll just leave it and we can open up for questions. Thank you. Uh, I do want to open it up for questions, but I want to have, give uh, Fred an opportunity to respond, if he wishes, to any of the points that either Janine or uh, Spencer raised. Yeah, I just want to say just two things. Is this on? Is this yes, it is. Uh, I basically agree with everything they said, except for a couple of things. I would, I would, I would dispute a couple of things that Janine said. First, she said that coin is not what kept us in Afghanistan. I would contend that it was. Uh, in the debates that took place in the uh, in the uh, National Security Council from August to December of 2009, the ten meetings, it was in fact the passionate and convincing, passionate and persuasive arguments for the need to switch to a new strategy and to put in more forces in Afghanistan that kept things going. It was the fact that the, the, the people arguing in favor of that were so persuasive that, that Joe Biden was really the only person in the room who opposed it. Uh, and his position was what we ended up actually doing after uh, the, the killing strategy was rejected. So 
it, it was, in fact, the idea was, okay, this is an idea. It worked in, in Iraq against all expectations, sort of. Uh, so let's give it a try in Afghanistan. If, if coin didn't exist, if Petraeus weren't where he was, if all that was going to be said was let's just do more of what we have been doing except with more troops, I don't think that President Obama or any president would have uh, advocated a surge and a continuation of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, the idea that Afghanistan really isn't a test of coin because it wasn't really tried, that may be true, but the Battle of Marja was seen as a test of coin. It was, okay, we're going to send these Marines into Marja, we're going to kick out the, the insurgents, and then we're going to bring in government in a box. Now, it was a, it was a vulgar kind of coin because there is no such thing as in a, government in a box. And this was Stan McChrystal's failing. It really, he was kind of like, you know, sort of like a, an atheist who becomes a Catholic, and, and you, you've got the doctrine really down, but you don't really quite understand the, the basis of it. Uh, he tried his own fashion of coin, and, and Marja was tried for quite a long time, and it didn't work, and it didn't work for reasons that were fundamental to Afghanistan. You could say that Afghanistan isn't a true test of coin because it was never going to work in Afghanistan, maybe. In which case, I would ask, where would it work? And then... Uh, but the point about flexibility and the need to retain this in your memory, I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, one thing that's definitely true is if you look at American history, uh, you know, at least in, in this aspect of American, of American military history, we do get into these kinds of things once every generation. And the previous occasion was so horrible that all the lessons have been thrown away. They're forgotten as quickly as they possibly can. And so the first few years of the, of the next time we get involved in this are, are, are horrible disasters. And it would be good if there were some preservation of this knowledge, some core of officers that continued to, uh, to understand this, to be trained in it. But I would say this is going to be difficult because if you say, if the president and the secretary of defense say this is no longer a core mission, it is no longer something that is going to drive the size of the forces. It becomes very difficult to preserve the kinds of incentives that need to be preserved to get people to say, okay, this is going to be my career path in the Army, uh, even though you know that it, you're, maybe we'll never get to be a general because of this. But, but generally, I, you know, uh, aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, I like the play very much. <laughs> Um, if I could, I'm going to exercise moderator's privilege, which I don't usually do, but uh, I, I want to drill down on one point. Fred, you <coughs> raised it. It creeps into the book in a few different places. It creeps in in the, uh, the COIN manual review conference at Fort Leavenworth, February 2006. It creeps in in um, Dave Kilcullen's critique when the counterinsurgency manual was published and, and which Spencer had something to do with kind of from, uh, Publicizing that incident, I won't repeat the uh, the exact phrase. We're going to keep this as a family uh, a family show, but there's some expletive involved there about this is really stupid. Um, and then in the in the very closing passages of the book, Fred and you and you repeated them today that the the historical models that we look to are not very satisfying because they don't look a lot like the kinds of wars that we imagine ourselves fighting. That is, we are not we are not the British in Malaya, we are not the French in Algeria, even. I go back to Lawrence, okay, T. E. Lawrence. In the case of Arabia, he was helping the Arabs drive out the hated Turks. So he was a friend of the insurgents as much as he was a counter-insurgent. So to me, 
given that a lot of the historical examples that we look to don't really seem to fit, are there any historical examples that are a good fit? That where we say, that one actually works for us, and here's why. Uh, either you any, any, uh, any of you. I think we'll find out in Mexico in three years. What's what? that say again? I said, I think we'll find out in Mexico in three years. I hope you're wrong. Wait, what was that? I think we'll in find Mexico. out in Mexico. Oh, Mexico. In Mexico, yes. Oh. Subject of another Cato book. Interesting. Um, Janine? Anyone? Are there, are there any good historical I mean, models I think a lot of the people at the coin conference, as you point out, would look to El Salvador, which is fundamentally, it makes the point that the initial conditions are, are critical, right? So your point about um, Afghanistan, it's probably more likely the lesson from Afghanistan is that this was just a really bad idea, that coin wasn't going to save us, CT wasn't going to be good enough, that, you know, based on this and Galula and everything else, that is textbook worst case to mm -hmm. even get into Afghanistan. And so um, I don't think there are a lot of great examples of this working. I think there are a lot of little examples of prevention and those sorts of things, which are really hard to prove. Right, because but the interesting thing about El Salvador, and El Salvador is often used as a contrast. And El Salvador, you know, we were the United States was congressionally limited to no more than fifty-five advisors. Now, right. this was fiddled with, and actually, sometimes it was a couple hundred the way they were doing it. But uh, there was one guy at the at the coin conference, uh, James Steele, who became a rather controversial figure in his own right but who had been in, in El Salvador, and he said, you know, every day that I was in El Salvador, I was chafing under these restrictions. I was cursing at the Congress, but in retrospect, it was good because it drove home in our minds that this was their war, not our war. It gave us leverage. You know, you could take 55 guys and get them all on one plane and leave like that. They're out tomorrow. Uh, you know, one problem with Iraq and especially in Afghanistan is that Maliki and especially Karzai have gotten into their heads and the United States has, has driven it further into their heads until recently that, that the United States wants this more than he is. He can do whatever he wants because they're gonna, the U.S. is going to stay here anyway, and as I said, until recently. But we, you know, you, it, by when you put in a huge thing like this, it, it, it becomes your war. There's, there's no... Uh, there's no kidding yourself about uh, this. Just one last. I think also it's Iraq and Afghanistan, especially Iraq. It's a hybrid of lots of things, right? Oh, yeah. It's not just coin, mm -hmm. and and that's what why the, the doctrine is helpful because it can help you make sense of lots of different contexts. But when you think about the American military experience post World War II in Germany and Japan, where you s could easily have had insurgencies blowing up post um, Civil War in the American South where you did, um, you had similar experiences. And so no, nothing is the same under the sun, <laughs> but um, not everything's completely sui generis either, right? Okay, um, we now have time for questions from the audience. Uh, a few uh, of the typical rules. Please wait for the microphone, especially for the benefit of those who are watching online. Um, uh, identify yourself and your affiliation, and uh, we uh, adhere to the Jeopardy rule here at the Cato Institute when it comes to asking questions. Frame your question in the form of a question. Uh, no speeches, please. Uh, here in the front. Yes, sir. Right here. Hi. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Craig Olson. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer, and I say that only because I wanted to point out that I spent two years in another insurgency country, Colombia. Yeah. And uh, <coughs> I wanted to ask about 
To what extent do any of you think that, say, Colombia and Afghanistan are similar in the sense that they're both mountainous countries in which the central government has, from the time of independence, never had effective sovereignty and governance over the entire terrain, and whether that is one of the major reasons why FARC in Colombia has been gone on for 50 years, and the Taliban in, in uh, Afghanistan may have the same... The same uh, Parallels between Afghanistan and Colombia. Anyway. Boy, I really don't know that much about Colombia. I mean, you make a, you make a convincing case. Um, I would also say the other, the other parallel is that the Taliban is a homegrown organization, unlike, you know, Al-Qaeda, unlike most of the jihadists in, in Western Iraq, for example. Yeah, right, that's what I mean, that's what I mean. Uh, so your, your, what, what implication would you draw from that in terms of what U.S. policy should be or... Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Insurgencies thrive. You mean yeah? Insurgencies, insurgencies thrive. Insurgencies thrive. Right. Yes. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly. Yeah. Or it could be just persistent. Yeah. Uh, over here. Hi, Doug Brooks. Um, my question would be on uh, would it be the comparison with Somalia, which I think is very interesting because it's not a you know essentially using regional troops, uh, not Americans, not particularly well supported or supplied, and yet you have a very I, I would argue a very successful uh, uh, coin program working in in a, in a sort of a crude way, but it actually we're seeing a lot of success, and Al Shabaab is is all but destroyed at this point, and just seems to me that maybe there is a doctrine here that, the, or a core of it, that, that can work even in a very difficult situation, which I would argue Somalia is. Is that coin? Yeah, I think that's your well, you point know, about the difference between, or the overlaps between coin and CT, too, right? I, I don't really see much of a counterinsurgency effort in Somalia. I'll, I'll, I'll defer from playing fake Somalia expert like I'll defer from playing fake Colombia expert. But when I look at the institutional mechanisms of what, of what the U.S. and its allies do in Somalia, I don't really see much that, that looks very similar. I certainly don't see an effort of legitimation, um, as, as you know, Fred pointed out, the importance of, of uh, establishing legitimacy. Um, you, you also just have the benefit of a far more uh, clownish al-Qaeda organization um, in, in that country. Uh, right now, they, they can't keep the adherence that they had won over before. Um, they're having tremendous internal problem with fundraising. Um, they've, come to, they, they've come to the point where a lot of what al-Shabaab's activity in Somalia is um, has become from uh, glomming on to a broader uh, series of, of weak institutions from the government and resistance uh, from a sort of variated coalition in Somalia to tweeting uh, trolly comments at people who defected from al-Shabaab. <laughs> That's I, not the Taliban. <laughs> I, I would also, just to, to get the terminology straight, you know, one thing Spencer said, and I've, I've said this too in the past, that, you know, we might be done with counterinsurgency, but it's not done with us. You know, the, there's different definitions of counterinsurgency. I mean, you could take the most literal definition of that. It's just, it's ways to counter an insurgency. <laughs> But what this field manual did, and what the, the rise of this community that propagated the field manual did, 
was to create a very specific definition with, you know, uh, bullet points and, and uh, you know, PowerPoint presentations of what counterinsurgency is, population-centric counterinsurgency. And I would argue that, you know, in the case of Somalia might be a good point, is if you talk about countering insurgencies, sometimes different, different methods or different mixes of different methods are going to work better than other mixes of different methods. Like, you know, I, I, I can't imagine sending in a large contingent of forces to do nation building in, in Somalia. It just uh, seems, seems crazy. But one could say we are countering the insurgency in a certain way. So, you know, it's, it's, it's become this, you have to be, you know, the words have, have, maybe that's one thing that we need to do at this point is to disentangle the concept of countering insurgencies from what the rather very strict definition of coin uh, has been in the last decade. Well, I think, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think that the, the book is, you know, from a historiographic perspective, is written in the context of Iraq. And so everybody thinks about Iraq, everybody's thinking about Iraq. And previous doctrine was very much in the context of Vietnam and, mm -hmm. and the French experience and things like that. And so you see that you know, as a thread through doctrine development over time. I think, though, you know, we can march around the world from Colombia to Somalia to North Africa, you know, and all these things have certain things in common. I think from a policy perspective, what you start to, you, the first fundamental question is, what are we trying to do? Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think what happened in Iraq and then in Afghanistan as we got in there and we were just so appalled and, and the American people were likewise appalled from a humanitarian perspective, and we had these grandiose ideas about what could be done, which is the, one of the fundamental flaws of that version of FM324 that they're supposedly fixing in the update, which is it conflates the role of the host nation with the role of the intervening actor. And our objectives in another person's country, in another country, are, are different than that, that country. They should be aligned in the objectives with respect to the intervention, but we're not going to win an insurgency. We will set a trajectory of some sort. And you say that's being revised in the in the current. Yeah, that was one. It was revised. one of the was one of the critiques that I brought up, and a couple other people brought up. But I think in in the subsequent years became very apparent. I mean, when when General Petraeus went back to Iraq, um, one of the things that really helped him in the surge was was the engagement he had with Maliki and the pressure that he put on him and the, the thing that, you know, as an intervening actor, I have certain levers and as the host nation, you have certain levers. If we're working together, we can pull those levers together. And that whole dynamic is not discussed in that coin manual at all. And I think people really recognize that, the community. So it's an evolving sure, art, not science. This, this will actually be a, an interesting test case for what we're talking about, about the degree to which the institutional knowledge of counterinsurgency over these last two wars persists. By the end of the year, I'm told this revised FM 324 uh, will be published. And you, you want to look at what lessons are going to be applied, not, not just the ones that, that come out of looking at what the, the, the manual was previously said and seeing how it applied in these test cases of, of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, one of the things that I did a story on this on Friday that I was, I was sort of surprised uh, to learn is that we, we have these just absolutely massive troves of, uh, of, of testimony, of documentation uh, from former Iraqi insurgents 
that we're just not at Leavenworth. They are not taking advantage of. The CIA is not taking advantage of. The Marine Corps is kind of taking advantage of in, in sort of looking at what its experience, in, in particularly in Western Iraq, was. But one of the things I would certainly really like to know um, if I'm revising this doctrine is what did the Iraqis, whom the manual says repeatedly in, in, in a generic sense, are going to be the difference makers. Uh, in, in these arguments, like actually felt, lived through, studied, and adapted to. And, and it's, it's somewhat astonishing to me that the military isn't taking advantage of this major opportunity. Uh, over here. <coughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, my name is Lyle Jackson. I'm a retired Army officer. Uh, my question is to Mr. Kaplan and to Ms. Davidson. Um, <coughs> And I'm asking this question not as an observer in Afghanistan and Iraq, and having been to both of those places, but as just a uh, observer of schoolyard politics. I wonder what the president's decision to to go with the surge in Afghanistan, how that decision was um, and that strategy was impaired by the fact that he announced up front that we're going to leave in 18 months. Um, well, I have friends in Afghanistan yeah. right now that are saying the Taliban are telling people, hey, the United States is gone next year. We're going to be here. Well, he didn't say we're going to leave in 18 months. He said we're going to start to withdraw. I, I, I have some sympathy with your viewpoint here. I, his rationale for saying that, and I think he had a very good point, was that Karzai has to get serious. He has to start reforming. If this is going to work, he, if he thinks we're going to be there forever, He's just not going to do it. So it was a message to Karzai that, look, you have to start getting into the swing of things. But at the same time, you're right. It was also a message to everybody else. And if you know that the thing, and, and, and by the way, everybody did take that to mean he's leaving in 18 months, not that he's going to begin to leave in 18 months. Uh, and yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think that's true, that if you think that, oh, well, he's out of here, um, you can hang out. At the same time, I think what is going on now, and what has been going on for some time, is all the parties preparing for the American departure, forming alliances, preparing for the renewal of the Civil War, call it what you will. Um, and, you know, in, in one sense, if, if, if we weren't going to get anywhere anyway, maybe that's not a bad thing. Uh, okay, I'm Karzai. Americans aren't going to be here forever. What do I have to do to stay here? Okay, I'm Pakistan. Uh, I need, you know, the whole Pakistan's reason for being in Afghanistan is basically to prevent it from becoming an India stronghold. The Americans were going to prevent this. They're not going to be there anymore. I need to still support the Taliban. I mean, one thing that, that is, I think, tragic is that Obama came into office convinced by several very smart analysts that this was a regional problem. This wasn't just Afghanistan. It was Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, even Iran. You had to, this was a regional problem with a regional solution. Uh, he appointed Richard Holbrook as the, uh, you know, the, the AFPAC, which is a terrible word that he invented, AFPAC emissary. Uh, India refused to take part in any kind of triangular scheme. Uh, and uh, Holbrook just kind of screwed it up from the very beginning, and he kind of was no longer the AFPAC guy after his first visit to Karzai, where he treated him the same way that he thought you could treat, you know, uh, Milosevic. Uh, and then we somehow we lost sight of the regional dimension of the problem. And, and I actually, I, I would be interested in reading something, and I don't think that this new Valley Nasser book is it, 
that explains how that happened, how, you know, he came in with this analysis by Bruce Riedel, who really understood this, uh, laid out the whole regional dimension, the local dimension, the tribal dimensions, and then in terms of what we did, I, this seems to have, have, have withered away, have been, been ignored, or am I overstating things? Well, I mean, to address your question, I think that one of the things Fred does really well in the book is identify and tease out over and over again this whole civil military dynamic, which, you know, whether it's from the, this president or the previous president, um, they're talking to multiple audiences, just as Fred says, and, and just that, that alone is a wicked problem because the message that you need to tell the American people or Karzai as a man may be different than the message you want the insurgents to hear. <laughs> and you can't moderate that. Um, uh, when I was working in this area with NATO, one of the problems they had was, you know, they trying to control the message that gets back to their capitals so that the, the NATO um, countries could sustain support. Um, there's some sort of nod and wink and kind of making fun of George Bush when he puts out his clear hold and build strategy in the book. but. Um, you know, they were operating off a theory of civil military relations by Peter Fever, who says that, you know, and that was a debate. The American people are done with this war. Well, no, the American people uh, will support a war, even if it's semi-audacious, if they think that you're winning and that you have a strategy to win. And so there's a little bit of, I mean, this is what the presidents do, you know, I, or, and leaders do. You have to, you have to build support. And is it faking it till you're making it? Till you're making it? Maybe, maybe not. But um, I think that that's, that's, that's going to continue to be a massive conundrum um, in these sorts of operations. Because uh, do you want to tell the insurgents when exactly how, whatever you're going to leave? No. But do you want to tell the American people that you're going to be there forever? No. Uh, I'll, I'll just make one quick point. I mean, the, when, you, when you've got a, a strategy that depends on conveying the exact opposite messages at home and abroad, that like just blinking red light that you just shouldn't <laughs> have this strategy at all. I, I, you know, I, 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 I take your point. The, the question is, you know, the implication is, well, do you leave now or do you stay forever? Because ultimately when you come up with, with one of these uh, with one of these choices, that's that's going to be, if not what your actual policy will be, it certainly can be the message you convey. And ultimately, it, it sort of gets back to the question of, um, you know, the tensions between a broader national strategy and the imperatives of a particular conflict that you're trying to mitigate. Um, you know, it's it's completely correct that in the context of Afghanistan, uh, you have a whole lot of implication of of, of Pakistan and of India looked at from the perspective of a broader national interest, it would be absolutely insane to subordinate your relationship with India, one of the you know, rising great powers in the world, to what you want to do to mitigate the conflict in Afghanistan. And that was at least you know, one of the, the reasons behind why you know, India pitched a fit when it, when it saw you know, one of the first things a new administration was doing was lumping it in with this, with this you know, Fatakta conflict. Um, so I'll just leave it there. Um, <laughs> Uh, here in the middle, and then I'll get you right over here. Right there. Yes, sir. Red tie. Yep. Thank you. Uh, I'm Jim Bruton, retired Army, currently independent scholar. And I wanted to uh, address my question to Mr. Kaplan, and perhaps Dr. Davidson could join in. In the book, you stated that John Noggle walked the halls of the Pentagon. This is at the outset of the of the deteriorating situation in Iraq, 
looking for a kindred spirit to talk to about coin. My question is, what was the office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict doing all this time? You, you mentioned them only in passing, and they were obviously not dormant. Uh, uh, Dr. Davidson's policy book is an example of that. But they were set up specifically, well, to do a number of things, one of which uh, included counterinsurgency. Were they totally inert uh, most, during most of this period, or, or what? Well, let's see, Janine, when did you join that? Sure. Then. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, well, uh, but, as it, but first of all, Nago gets there, and then very soon he does become aware of this office, and he's invited down to, they're doing a briefing on the Quadrennial Defense Review, and that's where he meets Kilcullen, and, and they have their, their own, uh, you know, kind of, you know, bromance. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, so I don't, you know, it, it, I, I didn't mean to suggest that he's, you know, prowling the halls for months and months, you know, and, and finding no suitor. Uh, he, he was re relatively quickly, uh, he did find out. But, you know, this, this office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense, or he was a deputy assistant, I mean, it wasn't exactly a, a, a shining tower of, of, with, with a high profile. I mean... At the time, they Until had Janine an office that. in the basement. It was Until Janine. <laughs> so I mean, it 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 wouldn't necessarily crop up on his radar screen from from the outset. Anyway, uh, it might take a little bit of digging to even to discover its existence, much less uh, what was going on. But but the point is, and, and other people were saying the same thing. You know, Gates noticed it when he came into the Pentagon. H.R. Uh, McMaster, when he came back to this group of colonels that he was working with, you know, he's looking around, you know, we're in two wars, how come, how come everybody's going home at five o'clock, and how come uh, nobody's talking about this, and how come people are coming in and, and briefing me on the future combat system and the F-22 fighter, and, you know, what the hell, aren't we in a war here? <laughs> and that was kind of the general Actually, disconnect. Fred, Fred, when you were laying out the four things that happened, uh, two th late 2006, 2007, you, you didn't mention, I didn't mention that Gates, Rumsfeld right. was, was, was yeah. uh, cashiered and Big Gates thing. replaced him, and that was as important as the promulgation of FM-324 and Petraeus going to Iraq. A very big and thing, the and, and the fact that, that Gates hired as his military assistant, uh, General Pete Corelli, who had, who had been trying to push coin in Iraq over the resistance of his commander, uh, George Casey, and uh, that whole community was kind of funneled in through Gates's speeches and so forth, through through Corelli. Uh, over here, sir. Yes. No, I could. Let's go first. I'll come back. Sorry. Jim Lowen, author of um, Lies. My teacher told me. Short question for Mr. Ackerman. Um, you uh, mentioned that um, counter terror, uh, counter uh, insurgency in Iraq replaced the counter terrorism policy in Iraq. My question is, in a sense, a formalistic one, maybe, but what was the terrorism in Iraq that we were countering? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually serious, though. Well, there were. I mean, there wasn't any in a way, right? In, in I mean, there was a Except rather extensive. Ter what? There was a rather. Ex uh, do you, I, I think you're making a point about there being a lack of connection between Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda before the war? Is that is that where? You're, well, yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's true. Um, and then you know. But there were okay. Iraqi terrorists. There were Iraqi terrorists, and there, and there certainly throughout uh, 
you know, the duration of the Iraq war became a whole lot more of them. So, and we may, and you can find them in Syria right now. Uh, in the back, yes, sir. Sorry, <laughs> I should tell my microphone uh, operator to stay in the back. There, yes. Chick Feldmayer, retired Army, and currently I do government affairs for a in de uh, defense industry. Uh, my question, first of all, for Fred is: I just finished your book, and I have till Friday to write a review for the Army Historical Foundation. <laughs> And I would just like your view, why do you recommend officers in the Army today read your book? <laughs> well, um, that's a good question. You mean after they get done with the, with the Army War College's list of recommended readings, including, uh, I'm asking you about 10,000 pages? Well, I would say, first of all, look, we now have an officer corps that this is the only kind of war that they've known. You know, that just now, you know, out of the National Training Center, they're just now, they're, they're calling it full spectrum operations. They don't know what to do, so they're kind of doing a bit of everything, some of which is including tank maneuvering, which hasn't been done for 10 years. So you have a, a whole core of officers who have come up through an age when counterinsurgency is really what they've been taught. Well, it might be useful for them to know where this all came from. It might be useful for them to know the historical perspective of this. And as, as Janine was, was summarizing, toward the end, while I'm, I am criticizing it for having limited um, cogency to today, one thing that did emerge from this is an army that has a more flexible view of warfare. I don't think we're going to go back to a time ever when something is called a military operation other than war or a low-intensity conflict. To the people on the ground, it feels like war, and it's very intense when it's happening. Uh, so I think it, it might even, as critical as I am of COIN, I, I'm, I'm quite supportive of the idea of the need to, to maintain a flexible view toward conflict. Uh, and also, you know, uh, they like to read a well-written story. They, they could just read it for that. Uh, here. We have, about, we have about 10, not quite 10 minutes left, so that's it. Hi, George Nicholson uh, with Strat Corps, 45 years in special operations, starting off with a, as an Air Force pilot, flying with the Air Commandos in Vietnam. One of the things a few weeks ago, Stan McChrystal was asked the question, and I think it alludes to what you alluded to, that you can't use the same template, and there's a tendency, can we use the template we used in Afghanistan and Iraq and Mali? And somebody said, well, what we're doing in Mali? And he asked the question, how many of you all are familiar with Mali? About 15 hands went up. And he says, all right, I want to show our hands what languages they speak in the country. <laughs> he made the point, and this is my the question, is that uh, when he went to West Point, the focus was on engineering. He says we need more of a focus on education, on culture, on history, on politics, understanding that. I was with General Jim Mattis uh, last week. I said, General, how many books do you have in your library now? Seven and a half thousand books in his own library. He says, I'm trying to get rid of them. But again, in terms of what we're missing in the military, education. Ten books on the Air Force Command uh, Chief of Staff's reading list. And the former chief's a close friend of mine. You look at General Mattis' reading list, he's got something like, what was it, 24, 24 pages. So again, how much of a part of this whole thing of understanding COIN, how to apply it, is we need to get back to the basics of having a core that understands education. 
Well, you know, I didn't go into it in my talk, but a, a big part of the first part of this book was the creation of the social science department at West Point after the war, which was created by this guy. Uh, he was a brigadier general named George Lincoln. Uh, he was a right-hand man to General Marshall. Uh, he's the youngest brigadier general in the U.S. Army at the end of the war. He decides, well, what really, and he was involved in, in working out the Potsdam Agreement, all kinds of things. He's looking around. All the military officers who are assisting uh, the generals and, and the politicians were all been, like him, Rhodes Scholars. And he goes, well, look, we can't, we're now becoming a global power. We can't rely on a handful of Rhodes Scholars. He said, we have to go back to West Point and set up a social science department. He took a demotion to Colonel to do that. And he created precisely what you're talking about, this department which envisions a new kind of officer who uh, he called an officer with three heads, someone geared in military matters, but also economics, also politics. He wrote the first American college textbook on international relations. This department is, is still going on, and, and you know it used to be West Point. Uh, it's true, when, when General McChrystal graduated, uh, I think that there were no majors yet. Everybody, there were electives, and you could choose from a wide variety of electives, uh, but there were no majors. Every, the ma major was engineering. Uh, I, th I think now education is, lack of education, I think, at this point is no excuse. Uh, you, not only do you have the West Point revisions, but you also have, you know, for the, for the planners, you have the School of Advanced Military Studies at Leavenworth, where they read about 150 books a year. Uh, you know, the Command General Staff College, all these reading lists. Uh, if people don't, if there are officers who don't think that you need to become educated about what you're doing or where you're going, then I don't know, at least in the Army, uh, I don't know where, where they're coming from or, or how they got to be where, the, where they are. I just, um, <clears throat> as a former Air Force officer speaking to a former Air Force pilot, um, the Army's way ahead of the Air Force on this. I don't, I don't know, it may have changed since I got out, but you know, you know, one of the parts of my calculus when I did leave the Air Force was they would, you know, I, I had a, they will pay for engineering degrees and business master's degrees. Um, they don't give people as much time off to get their degrees. I have our Air Force students now in my PhD program that are not given enough time to do the program. Um, it's not like that in the Army. The Army's way ahead of the Air Force. So, and, 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 and they do it right, I think. And the Marines. And the Marines, yep. Uh, I had, especially though. You had a hand right behind, uh, right there, right, right behind the gentleman who just asked the question. And if you ask your question quickly, I have time for one more question. So please be quick. Sure thing. My name's uh, Philip Padilla. I'm former Army Special Operations, and now I'm at the RAND Corporation. Uh, a question for uh, the panel on um, what role did the Special Operations senior leadership have in the entire shift to the coin focus and how is it that they've been able to manage you know the the teflon resistance of uh a lot of the culpability for you know afghanistan and iraq not turning out the way they're supposed to hasn't come on to the special operations community can i and then let's combine with the, go ahead sir you ask a question too and then i'll give the uh, all three panelists a chance to respond hi i'm, I'm tom curry with nbc news uh since both iraq and afghanistan happened in the aftermath of the attack of September 11th, uh, and in some way were justified by that. Um, has the targeted killing program um, made counterinsurgency operations and prolonged deployments uh, obsolete? Hmm. Uh, if, if preventing yeah. another terrorist attack is, is the goal, has the targeted killings program made the 
what you're talking about in your book, obsolete, and if not, why not? Well, uh, very quickly, the first question. I mean, counterinsurgency or something like it is something that special operations has always done, at least to some degree. Uh, if not in doing it themselves, then in advising and assisting other countries in doing it. Uh, you know, it went through its own uh, roller ride, his roller coaster history of, of, of ups and downs. Uh, but I think, I think, and, and this, this actually ties into your question, I think what is happening now is that, look, this president, and I think the country as a whole, has no appetite to go into uh, wars that are not of an existential nature, let us say, with, with large numbers of troops. And they see special operations and targeted killings as things that are good enough to do to stem the tide of whatever, whatever tide we're trying to stem. Uh, is it good enough? I mean, it depends what it is. I mean, I will say this. If every two weeks you have heard about a number, number, another number three al-Qaeda leader that's been killed in a targeted assassination, I think the question is where are all these new number threes coming from? Uh, they, they, I mean, one problem, somebody told me about Afghanistan. Oh, well, listen, this is working great because, you know, it used to be the average Taliban, the average Taliban commander was 34. Now he's only 24. You know, it's not as seasoned. And then I asked somebody else, I said, well, is this true? And he goes, well, yeah, it is true, but this isn't good news. <laughs> These 24-year-olds have been fighting since they were 15. They're much less disposed to calling it quits and negotiating something than the 34-year-old. We're actually creating a situation that might be promoting militants, more militant militants than the one who are there. So, I mean, I, I, think, I think what is happening, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of mixed about the whole drone strikes and targeted killings. I mean, obviously there are certain cases where, okay, here is so-and-so, and this guy is really a bad guy, and he's gonna do terrible things, and we have a chance to kill him right now. I think under some circumstances, okay, let's do that. But don't kid yourself, I think, that this is going to solve the, the, the problem, that this is, now, don't kid yourself that sending in 40,000 troops is going to solve the problem either. Uh, but it's become this kind of, uh, it's, I, my, my concern about it is that it's become too easy. It's, and, it's, and it has the effect of sanitizing war. You know, I think if you asked anybody, are we in, in war with Uganda or Mali or whatever, people say, oh, no. But ask somebody on the ground there, they might have a different answer to that. I think it, we have a tendency to get sucked into something because it is so easy. Uh, and we can, we're getting back to the day, I mean, I, it's, it's very different from Rumsfeld in a lot of ways, but it's back to that notion of, you know, just a very small footprint, do the task, and then leave. I mean, the difference is that Rumsfeld wanted to do it to overthrow regimes, and Obama wants to do it to, to, to uphold them or to, or to get rid of terrorists. But uh, I think the big problem is that it, it's being looked at autonomously, and it's not being looked at in terms of a larger uh, strategy. Uh, we're almost out of time, Spencer, so quick. So imagine a Snickers bar. <laughs> the nougat is terrorism? and specifically uh, a terrorist entity like Al-Qaeda, and that's what you really want to eat. You want to, you want to just get rid of that nougat. Uh, the degree to which I think uh, your question uh, will apply to the degree to which uh, counterinsurgency uh, remains as an option, a desirable option uh, with counterterrorism is the degree to which policymakers will decide the only way you can get that nougat is to eat the peanut butter and to eat the chocolate. <laughs> and particularly, you know, when we, when we look at, you know, other, other situations where the U.S. Might, might get sucked into it, 
um, the degree to which they'll, they'll want to also feel that the only way they can get uh, to, the, to even the chocolate and so forth, uh, before you can even start thinking of the nougat, is to build these institutions uh, for a host nation state building. I, I, I would argue that's like eating the wrapper. <laughs> and and, and I, I wonder if, if, if ultimately that's going to be the way this goes. Um, to your excellent question about SOF, particularly for Afghanistan, SOF leadership was all behind it because they recognized rather sensibly and foresightedly that uh, with McChrystal in charge, as much as you get like almost more Catholic than the Pope, even though McChrystal's nickname is the Pope and Petraeus's isn't, uh, all of McChrystal's public statements are exceptionally uh, um, you know, geared towards uh, discretion and force. Uh, Special Operations Command really got a tremendous amount of investiture uh, in Afghanistan, and you're starting to see, um, under uh, Admiral McRaven's leadership worldwide, uh, a whole lot more uh, coming out of that into other places, but very much in line with, with lessons that were taken from Afghanistan they wind up behind. All right, I'm afraid we're out of time. I apologize. But we will have more time uh, upstairs in the uh, George M. Yeager Conference Center for uh, lunch discussion.